Well, we invite the uh, little ones, any kids kindergarten to second grade to be dismissed to children's church, and those who are in the kids' choir can be dismissed as well. And would you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 3? Luke chapter 3. If you are using a pew Bible, uh, that is found on page 1016. Page 1016, Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, page 1016. Today we catapult forward. Chapters 1 and 2 of Luke have been about the infancy and childhood of Jesus. But now we launch forward. Jesus and uh, John the Baptist are now in their 30s, most likely. And as we launch forward in this story, we now move to the public ministry of Jesus. So we, this is a, a major kind of chapter division in the story of Luke. And here we come to Luke chapter 3, and it's the story of John the Baptist preparing the way before Christ. And let me just read this. We're going to study verses 1 to 18. It says in Luke chapter 3, verse 1, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Traconitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for Him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, The man with two tunics should share with him who has none and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. 
I love uh, showing hospitality. I love having people over to my house. Um, it's great. And, and you know why I love having people over to my house? You know the best thing about hospitality is it's awesome. It forces you to clean your house. It's <laughs> the best thing, you know. Uh, and, and it's not, I'm not complaining about our house being filthy or anything. It, it, my wife does a good job. It's just, um, we just have four kids is what I'm saying. So we're outnumbered. We can't keep up. And so we've, we've kind of sort of just uh, succumbed to it. And, but, but, you know, when guests come, we, we sort of have an excuse to rally the troops to really clean the place. We had uh, the elders of the church over to our house on Tuesday night. We have a, a monthly elders prayer meeting in addition to the monthly elders uh, business meeting, which you're all uh, welcome to come to, by the way. It's an open meeting. But the prayer meeting we usually hold in different elders' homes. And uh, it was at our house this Tuesday night. So it was great. I got to, you know, crack the whip and tell kids, come on, you know. And we were vacuuming under chairs and we were picking up toys all over. We even, we even cleaned up all the junk on top of the piano. I mean, we, I've never seen the top of that piano, I don't think. It was beautiful. Uh, and, and it was all clean. It just felt so good. Because when guests come, you know, you've you got to clean the place to get ready. Uh, think of a person that you admire. Maybe some famous person. Think of a famous person that you just enjoy. Maybe it's an actor or actress, and you love their movies. You've always seen you know, their movie. Anyone that comes out in this actor actress is in it, you've got to see it. Or maybe it's a famous musician who's uh, written a certain song or some songs that have meant a lot to you down through the years. Or perhaps it's a, a sports figure that you enjoy watching and you followed their career. Maybe even some politician or, or leader uh, of business that, that you've really looked up to and said, well, that, that guy really has got it right. Now imagine if that person was coming over to your house tomorrow night for dinner. You know, what kind of cleaning frenzy would it launch you into the second you got... You might even just leave church right now. You might even come to church today. You'd be like, i got to get cleaning. Because who knows? They might come down in, into the basement, you know? And they might look at my cellar. They might look in my bedroom closet. So you just you would clean the place. Because when guests come, you, know, you just kind of go nuts and you, and you clean. It's a good thing. And if we want God to come into our lives, the house has got to be clean. If we want Jesus Christ to come into our lives and our experience, the house has to be pure. If we want the Holy Spirit to move in our church with power and change our lives, you know, the house has to be clean. That's the way it works. Now, in some ways, I was kind of thinking about this analogy, and I sort of have a love-hate relationship with the analogy I'm using, because in some ways it, it doesn't work, because, you know, uh, in real life, when you, cl you clean the house and then the guest comes, but in salvation, it's God who cleans us of our sins. It's not like you, you clean yourself up and then go to God. I mean, the whole point of salvation is you come to Him and you say, I'm a sinner, I can't save myself, and it's the blood of Jesus that washes us clean. And yet, and yet, we have a responsibility, clearly in the Bible, to participate in the cleansing process, and our responsibility is called repentance. That, that's our response to God's saving us. We are called to repent. Um, if we want Christ to come, we, we must repent. You know, people talk about revival. Oh, wouldn't it be great if we had a revival? Wouldn't it be super if God came and revived us? Yeah. But, you know, revivals are kind of messy. You look at the history of revival down through the centuries, and, and whenever revival happens, there is conviction of sin, there is confession, there is repentance. It's a painful process. It's not just sort of a happy-go-lucky kind of thing. Um, repentance is difficult. 
And so, yeah, we want Christ to come in our lives, but if we want Him there, we have to repent of our sins. And that's what John's message is. As we look here at Luke chapter 3, John comes preparing the way for Jesus, and his message is repent. God is coming, so let's clean the house, repent. Look at verse 1. It says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, by the way, that would put us at about 28 or 29 B.C., if you mark 15 years from when uh, Tiberius became Caesar after Augustus, uh, it would be somewhere around 28 or 29 B.C. When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. Yes, I did practice these names many times. Uh, <laughs> during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. So we have Luke, the consummate historian here, cataloging when all these things happen. But I think it's more than just a historical footnote. It is historical. But I think this is also a theological commentary. In other words, you have this contrast. Here are all the powerful rulers of the land. Here's the, the Caesar and the governor and the tetrarchs and the high priest. And then there's John, the crazy guy with the camel hair clothes who eats you know, grasshoppers and honey out in the desert. He's just this kind of wild caveman sort of guy. He's a Nazarite, so his hair, you know, he hasn't cut his hair since birth, most likely. So, you know, think how long his beard and his hair must be. I mean, the guy, he just, he's this maniac out in the wilderness. But, but the interesting thing is, God's kingdom is coming. God is drawing near, but he's not coming to the places of power and position and privilege. If you want to hear God and meet with God, you've got to go out in the desert. And the desert in the Old Testament is, is often a place of testing, it's a place of purification and repentance. It's where Israel went to be tested and to be purified by God. Uh, it's where Jesus goes to be tempted. You, you go into the desert in some ways to meet with God. You, you don't go in the, the pulse of the city. You go out in the, the, the desert, the wilderness areas. And so if you want to be a part of what God is doing, you have to repent and go humbly out into the no man's land where nothing lives except wild, crazy people like John the Baptist. And this was his ministry, verse 3. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John's message was very simple, very easy. Repent, the Lord is coming. Repent, repent, that's what you have to do. And to, to show repentance, to symbolize repentance, people were baptized. And the, the word baptism means to dunk or immerse. Every time you see the word baptized in the Bible, you can just translate you translate it, immerse. It, it means to dunk under. And so that's why he was at the Jordan River, because they needed enough water to dunk people under the water. Now, just to be really clear here, John's baptism is a different thing from Christian baptism. And it's kind of a little theological fine point there. What John was doing is not the same thing as what we do, because John's baptism was kind of a unique thing. It was a one-time one kind of thing where John was preparing the people of Israel for their Messiah. It was a preparatory work. What we do as Christians is baptizing in the name of Jesus now that Christ has come. And so it's a different uh, symbol. But, but, so people were being prepared. John was baptizing people. Uh, people's hearts were getting ready for the coming of the Messiah. And then in verse 4, Luke gives us the theological explanation of uh, why John was there. And what we see, if you look at this verse, is that John's activities were not random or self-motivated. He was fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy, actually a series of Old Testament prophecies, about the coming of the Messiah and this guy who would come before and prepare the way. So it says in uh, verse 4, As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, and here's a quote from chapter 40 of Isaiah, 
a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for Him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. And now, you may be familiar with Isaiah chapter 40. I mean, perhaps, you know, one of the greatest chapters. It starts out, Comfort, comfort my people, declares the Lord. Isaiah chapter 40 is when God proclaims that He's going to come and save, that God Himself is going to draw near to His people. So if God is coming, you know, you've got to get the house ready. You've got to clean the house. You've got to get prepared. And, and now here the imagery is not so much cleaning a house, it's, it's getting the road ready. You know, fill in the potholes find the places where the road's pretty steep and, you know, bring in a big truck or whatever to grade it down. And if it's kind of crooked, you know, straighten it out. Get the road ready so the king can just walk on a straight, flat road. Straight into Jerusalem. The king is coming. As of now, you can see the symbolism of this. It's, it's not that hard to understand. John the Baptist is the guy who goes ahead saying, prepare the way. God comes, and who's that? Jesus. Isn't that interesting? that an Old Testament prophecy about Yahweh God is applied to Jesus. So Jesus is God coming. And then, what is the flattening of the roads? It's repentance. So it's not so much a physical topography as it is kind of a spiritual, uh, you know, earth-moving endeavor. It's, it's a spiritual filling in of the holes, a leveling of the hills. It's getting our hearts ready for the coming of the Messiah. And that was John's ministry. Whenever God shows up among his people, whenever God draws near, it is always, always, always preceded by repentance. God always requires it. This is kind of like a spiritual axiom that, that if we want God to come near, there must be repentance. Because God is holy. And, and so how can a holy God draw near to me if, if, I, if I'm filled up with sin? There has to be a repenting and a turning from sin. I think of uh, Jesus' ministry after John. And what did Jesus preach? He preached, repent and believe the good news. Or I think of uh, the church in the book of Acts. Remember this story when the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's poured out on the church and Peter, filled up with the Holy Spirit, preaches to this huge crowd that wants to know what the heck is going on. What, why are these Christians acting so weird? And he preaches to them and his sermon you know, just cuts these people to the heart and they say, what should we do? And what's Peter's answer? Repent and be baptized so that you may receive the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of your sins. So, so you know, repentance is always a part of it. When you look at church history and different revivals that have come, they always include repentance. Uh, I was, when I was thinking about John the Baptist, I thought of this uh, character from the, the Great Awakening. I, I don't know if you've heard of him. You, you've probably heard of different names from the Great Awakening in the 18th century. Maybe you've heard of George Whitfield, probably was the leading figure of that. Maybe you've heard of John Wesley and Charles Wesley, we still sing some of his hymns. Um, maybe you've heard of Jonathan Edwards, all part of the Great Awakening. Have you heard of a character named Howell Harris? Probably haven't. Howell Harris, he was a Welshman. He was not ordained. He, he was not you know, trained in the seminary. He was just kind of a, uh, this wild, short, stocky, fiery Welshman who was deeply converted from sin. And this guy was just... He, he didn't call himself a preacher because he wasn't ordained. He called himself an exhorter. Okay? And, and what he would do is he would just stand and, you know, if people were coming down the road, he'd grab them and just start preaching at them. And, and he would stand and preach. And it says, you know, he didn't prepare sermons because he figured that was the work of ministers. So what he would do is he would just stand and just start speaking. And he would go for two, three, six hours at a time. Just preaching and preaching. And, and hundreds and thousands of people in Wales 
were convicted of their sins and became Christians. And in fact, he was preaching in the open air three years before George Whitfield ever started it. You think of George Whitfield as the pioneer, but it really wasn't. Whitfield was emboldened to preach in the open air outside of churches because he saw what uh, Powell Harris was doing. But it was the same message. It was repentance. It was believe and repent. And that was Harris's experience of being saved. It was repentance. Whenever God comes among his people, there always must be repentance of sin. It's a spiritual axiom. Well, maybe we should uh, define repentance. Um, perhaps that would be helpful. We keep talking about repent, repent, repent. You know, what does that mean? I mean, it's not really a word we use. It's one of those churchy words. And I'm always uh, nervous about churchy words, not because I have any problem with them, but because, you know, if you don't use them all the time in business. I mean, when's the last time you told someone to repent at work? You know, it just, when's the last time, you know, your teacher told you to repent in school? I mean, we don't use that language. It's kind of a churchy language. But, you know, what does it mean? What is repentance? Uh, and, and if I could sort of give us a working definition before we look back at the text and then see if it's borne out in the text. Repentance is this. Here's my working definition. Repentance is an inward turning away from sin that produces outward behavioral changes. So it has two components. There's an inward and an outward. It's inwardly, in your heart, in your mind, in your spirit, whatever you want to call it, turning away from sin. And it's so powerful, it's so real, that it will naturally have consequences in the way you live day to day. So, uh, first of all, r- repentance is inward. It's, it's a turning in your heart. It's kind of a spiritual 180. Uh, you know, before I repented, I looked at sin and it was like, yeah, you know, what's the big deal? I mean, I know I'm not perfect, but who is? And I mean, come on, let's not get all bound of shape. I mean, everybody does that. And, you know, I mean, who doesn't? I mean, that's just normal. That's just the way business is done today. And, and you know, I mean, come on, let's not be such Puritans and prudes. You know, it's, it's all this self-justification rationalization. But when I repent, I say, no, that is evil. That is sin. It is displeasing to God. And often that turning, as we change our minds about the nature of sin, it's often so painful that people will cry. I mean, during the Great Awakening, you know, Jonathan Edwards would preach, and people were literally weeping and shaking and falling down. And and it wasn't some, you know, charismatic slain in the spirit thing. It's just that they were so convicted of their sin that it was just like, you know, they were shaken to the core of their being as they turned from sin and a and, and agreed with God. That's a good definition of repentance that I've heard. Repentance is agreeing with God about sin. I agree with God that sin is what it is. And, and it's a turning away. So it's an inward act. But it then produces outward behaviors. And that is John the Baptist's emphasis. He, he really emphasizes the outward part. Look at verse 7. John said to the crowds coming to him to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? You know, by the way, you know, when I was in seminary and took preaching classes, and they told us how to do introductions to sermons, you know, the, the, the idea was to build a bridge with the audience. So, um, yeah, John's got a little different approach there, huh? But, you know, he is trying to build a bridge. He just recognizes that the first piece of the bridge is repentance. So maybe he has it right, and maybe we have it wrong today. So he says, you snake children, who warned you to flee from the coming judgment? Produce fruit, the outward, in keeping with repentance, the inward. So the inward repentance, to to show that it's real, must result in outward behavioral changes. I mean, because, you know, anybody can say they're sorry. Anybody can say, oh, I repent. 
Anybody can sit in a confessional and talk to a priest. Anyone can sit in my office and say, oh, yeah, I did this and I did that. You know, anyone can talk a good talk. Anyone can come down to the Jordan River and get baptized by John as part of the crowd. You know, getting baptized is easy. You just, you know, and you're up. Repentance is hard. And repentance results in a changed life. That's how you know if the repentance is real, is by the transformation of your life. That's the outward consequence, the, the resulting behavioral transformation. Uh, this is what John gets into in verses 10 to 14. I love this interaction with the crowds, don't you? Verse 10, What should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, The man with two tunics should share with him who has none. The one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. By the way, tax collectors were crooks. They were swindlers. They were bad people. Everyone hated them, and for good reason. They're just Nobody liked tax collectors. These were really you know, shady characters. But they're coming and they're repenting. Teacher, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. And isn't it interesting, and uh, by the way, this is, I think, a problematic verse for pacifists. Because you'd think if pacifism was the, the teaching of Scripture, of, of absolute pacifism, Jesus probably would have said to the soldiers, lay down your arms and stop being soldiers. But he didn't say that. He said, stop abusing your power as soldiers. Stop using, exhorting people for, for money. It's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, St. Augustine pointed that out. Um, but you know what I find interesting about all of these outward fruit, all these outward evidences of inward repentance? Is they all have to do with money. Isn't that interesting? A little side note. You know how you know when you've really repented? It's when it affects your pocketbook. <laughs> you know, anyone can talk a good game, but man, that's how you know where your heart is, is check the balance sheet. You know, our, our, our money is so close to our hearts. And I know some people don't like when preachers talk about money. They don't like when churches talk about money. Well, then you would really not have liked Jesus very much because he talked about it a lot. In fact, uh, many have said that of all the topics Jesus addresses, money is the one he addresses more than any other. Why is it? Was Jesus a televangelist just trying to swindle you and, and, you know? No, I mean, no. He talks about money because money is so close to my heart. And, and where I spend my money and how I deal with money says a lot about where my heart is. And so a lot of this repentance, and we'll see in a lot of Luke, is, is about how we respond to God and how that evidences itself in the use of our resources. But if we're going to repent, then we need to show fruit in keeping with repentance. There must be outward evidence. Anyone can say what they want, but how do you know if repentance has really taken place? If you see changes in their life. And maybe I should pause too and just kind of do a little parenthesis here and be really clear about this. Uh, John is not preaching penance. Okay? This is an important little side note. Penance is the idea that I make up what I did bad by doing something good. That's not what John is saying. He's not saying, look, you did some sins, but if you wrap up some clothes in a trash bag and give it to the Salvation Army at the local station, that makes up for the bad things you did. You know, right now your bad deeds are here, so do some good deeds and those will outweigh your bad. That's not what he's saying. This is not about, you know, make up for your bad. I mean, the whole point of repentance is I can't. The whole point of repentance is I'm so revolted by my sin that, that I'm just, you know, turning away from it and running from it, scrambling desperately, trying to find any hope that I can of salvation in God. And, and so it's not about being a better person. It's not about, okay, I was bad, now I'm going to make a new resolution, now I'm going to be good. No, no. Repentance is a turning of the heart. It's a revulsion against sin. And, and you may say this is kind of a fine point, but man, this point is all the difference. It's the difference between salvation by works and salvation by faith and grace. 
It's the difference between hell and heaven. It is understanding that it's through Christ that we're saved, not by being a better person. The point is that the, the change in life simply shows the reality of the repentance. So that's what repentance is. It's an inward turning of the heart that produces an outward change in behavior. And it's what is always necessary when God draws near to his people. But there's another reason why it's necessary. You, you know, why should we repent? I mean, I guess that's another question we can ask. Uh, because, I mean, for crying out loud, repentance sure sounds kind of hard, you know? <laughs> you know. Okay, why would someone want to do this? It's pretty traumatic, and we're talking about changing lifestyles. This could really disrupt my you know, weekend plans, God. Uh, so, you know, why, why exactly would I want to repent? Why would I want to do this? What is, what is our motivation for turning away from sin and, and clinging to God in faith? And uh, I think we've answered the question in part because we want God in our lives. But it's more than that. It's not just that I would love to have Jesus in my life more and so I need to repent. It's that, it's that God is coming whether I want him to or not. Okay, It's not sort of an optional thing. He is coming and he is a holy God. Or as it says in the Old Testament, our God is a consuming fire. And when that God draws near, I have to be ready. And the way I make myself ready is through repentance. Through repentance. I think that's what John is talking about in verse 8. He says, Who uh, produce fruit in keeping with repentance? Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. And I love verse 9. It's just such an, a jarring image. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. <laughs> this is sort of God as lumberjack. All right? <laughs> you know, God, it's like the axe is at the root. It's not like the axe is back in the shop and God's going to go get it. No, no, no. The axe is at the root. You know, the blade is against your tree right now. And, and, and you think, you know, oh, I'm fine. And, you know, look at me. I mean, I, you know, I have this job and I drive this car and my kids go to this school and I live in, you know, Cohasset or Hingham or Norwell and Deluxebury. You know, I'm, you know look at me. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm a decent person. And, you know, when the Katrina thing happened, I gave, you know, 10 cans of Campbell's to, you know, the, the relief efforts. You know, it's, so we have, you know, look at me and, and it's like, no, 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 no. Where's the fruit? like that old movie show me the money show me the fruit show me the change in your life where is the repentance of sin because the axe is sitting against the root God like a lumberjack he's got the flannel shirt rolled up right? he's got the axe you know it's sharp and it's against the root of the tree and he's just getting set and all he has to do is swing and you're done. That's all that's left. And the only thing that is keeping that blade from coming back and swinging is his patience with you, his kindness and his long-suffering with you. We have to repent. And I don't know when it's going to be. Someday we all have to stand before God. And someday Christ is going to return. Are we ready for that day? I mean, really, are we ready? We have to ask ourselves this. That's what John would have us consider. And I don't know when it's going to happen. It can happen like, like that. It can happen so quickly. I wonder if on September 11, 2001, if some of those people who are walking to work at the World Trade Centers, if they had walked by, perhaps, some crazy wild street man in New York, 
ranting and raving about repent, repent. You know, your life could be demanded of you this day. I wonder if it even possibly would have entered their minds that it could have been true. But that was their day. And we're each going to have our day. And I don't know when my day is going to be. I, you know, I could really drop dead before the end of the sermon. It's happened. I could suddenly, even as a young man, you know, and that would be it. Uh, I don't know if, if we're going to make it home today on the car ride. I don't know if by the end of this month you won't be doing a funeral for one of you who are here today. I could be. And I'm not saying that to threaten or to you know, be melodramatic or whatever. It's just a fact. And I, you know, maybe you'll live 70 years. I don't know. I hope you do. But I do know this. The axe is at the root. And so whatever that time span is, the axe is at the root. And in God's time, he will swing if there's not repentance. So that's why we need to repent, because our God is a holy God, a God who does not put up with sin. And now is the day to turn to Christ and repent. And that's the good news, is that there is salvation and forgiveness too. You see that in verses 15 and following. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Isn't that an interesting phrase? What, what does that mean? That we'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire? I mean, I think I understand the Holy Spirit part. You know, at the day of Pentecost, uh, Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit on, on the disciples. And, and whenever we turn to Christ, uh, you know, when you're saved, you, you receive, you're baptized by the Holy Spirit at your conversion. So, so I understand that. But what about the fire part? You know, I just, and I was sort of interpreting this passage. I was like, what is the fire? Does that refer to the fire of the Holy Spirit? You know, the day of Pentecost, there were like flames of fire above the people's heads. Maybe that's the fire. I mean, it could easily be. Uh, but at the same time, if you look at the next verse, fire seems to be destructive. It says in verse 17, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat from into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So there, fire is clearly a judgment imagery in the context. So, you know, is the fire a good thing, like, you know, purging, or is the fire a bad thing? I think the answer we, that I sort of come to is yes. I mean, it, it's fire. It's, it's God's holy presence. And it either purges or it destroys but it's going to burn. So will it purify me or will it reduce me to ashes? And here's what's interesting. Oh, this is so cool. Oh, this is amazing. I'm just so, so psyched up about this. Turn, uh, put a bookmark here. Go to the Old Testament book of Malachi. Where's that? It's on page uh, 950 in the Pew Bible. If you don't have a Pew Bible, well, wow. Good luck. Malachi. <laughs> Malachi chapter 3. This is amazing. Oh, I love this when I found this when I was studying. Oh, In Malachi chapter 3 and 4, there are two separate prophecies about the coming of John the Baptist, the forerunner, followed by the Messiah. And in both prophecies, there is fire imagery. In one, the fire imagery is cleansing. In the next chapter, it is destructive. Oh, check it out. Yeah, that's what gets me fired up. Look, look at chap Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, here's the cleansing one. See, I will send my messenger, there's John the Baptist, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? 
Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like silver and gold. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings and righteousness. So he's going to burn and purify. But now look over at chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 5. Here's another very famous prophecy about the coming of John the Baptist. Chapter 4, verse 5. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. But what's that day like? Well, you have to go back up to verse 1 to read about the day. Surely the day is coming, chapter 4, verse 1. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord. Not a root or branch will be left to them. So, oh, isn't that so cool? Two prophecies about the coming of the Messiah and the forerunner with fire, one that purifies and one that destroys. And so the question is, will I repent? Will I turn to Christ and turn from my sins? and repent so that I might be purified from my sin and not destroyed forever. It's so beautiful to think that God would come and give me a chance to turn and repent. Have you ever repented and believed in Jesus? Have you ever done that? And, And I ask that question because I know that probably the majority of us here have been have a religious upbringing of some sort. The majority of us here were taught some kind of right and wrong from our parents. Maybe you were taught the golden rule, and that's good. But that's not the same as repentance and faith in Christ. You know, I know you're all decent people. I'm sure you're very decent. I'm sure I'd love to socialize with you, and you know, and if my house gets messy, I'd love to have you over to eat with us. You know, um, but God isn't looking for decent. God is looking for holy, and we can't achieve that without Him saving us and cleansing us. Have you ever personally repented and turned to Christ? Repent before it's too late. The axe is at the root. And what about those of us who know Jesus, those of us who who have turned to Christ? Well, I think for us, repentance is a kind of a daily discipline. It's just something you you do to grow as a Christian. Because even as a Christian, the world is there, Satan is there, sin is there, it keeps creeping in. And as a Christian, it's kind of like, you know, weed in the garden. You just got to go out every day and Weeded. It's kind of a basic Christian discipline is to repent of sin. And if we want God to move in our church, and we want the Spirit to move in our church, we need to repent and, and turn to Him. It's time to come clean about the affair you had. And I know it was 12 years ago, and nobody knows, but you know time hasn't fixed it. It's time to come clean. It's time to find a brother in the church that you trust and break free of the shame and confess to somebody that you are addicted to pornography or that you are addicted to alcohol or that you are a gambling addict. It's time to admit the fact that you are an angry person and that your anger has hurt a lot of people And you've tried to excuse it by saying, well, I'm just that way. It's time to deal with that and to face up to the emails you've sent and the things you've said and letters you've written that have hurt people because of anger. It's time for us to to forgive people who've hurt us. And we have held a grudge for years. Some of those people that we have a grudge against are dead and we still haven't forgiven them. 
some people are in the church and we still haven't forgiven them and then we have the gall to take communion together that's a disgrace you're eating and drinking judgment on yourself repent we, we need to repent of our biting tongues the way we criticize and gossip about each other and talk about each other behind our backs Oh, we need to repent of being so rebellious against our parents and just lose this, you know, I'm cool teenager attitude, this displeasing to God. And we need to say, God, I want to honor my father and mother. We need to repent. I need to repent of my consumerism and just how much money I waste on stuff that's just junk. And I need to show fruit of repentance and start spending more of my money you know, to help poor people and to advance missions, and to advance the work of the church. That's where I need to be spending more of my money. I need to repent. There needs to be a transformation in my life that produces fruit. And we can sing all the songs we want, and we can listen to the sermons, and I can preach and preach, but unless I'm repenting and there's fruit, it's all just a bunch of words. I'm terrified by the words that God said through Isaiah to Israel. He said, these people... Honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Let it not be said of our church. Let us repent and heed John the Baptist. And I don't care, maybe you've been mired in sin for years and you're like, you know, this is just how I am. No, it's not! There can be freedom. You can be saved. You can, you can break with whatever it is, even if it's held you your whole life and you're 80 years old and you've always been a drunk. You can stop today through the power of the Spirit. And you can be saved. There's still time. The axe has not swung. Let's turn to Christ and be saved. Let's pray together. And in a minute, we're going to pray a corporate prayer of repentance together. So we can bring the screen down. But let's just take a few moments of silence. And whatever it is that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about, let's, let's begin the hard but freeing work of repentance.